The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Geb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out in weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Christ Prez on this rainy day. Uh, good to have shelter and good to be with you. Uh, and uh, love uh, seeing your faces. And I know there are also a lot of faces we're not able to see uh, because of uh, those who have chosen to participate online uh, in their homes and other places. Uh, whether you're here or whether you're with us online, we welcome you and we're grateful to be in community with you uh, before the face of God today. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I want to direct us all to this thing that we're now calling the virtual black book. Uh, that means you can dial on to uh, christprez.org slash black book. One word, christprez.org backslash black book. That's how and that's where you register uh, your participation in today's service, whether you're here uh, in person or whether you're, you're online. And uh, that just helps us to pastor and shepherd our church community better. That helps us to know who is here visiting with us, either in person or online, uh, and to follow up with things like gifts and emails and uh, church information and things like this. Uh, and uh, the other thing I want to do uh, this week is I'm going to front load my remarks uh, before the offering, which usually come after the sermon, uh, but I'm going to give you something to contemplate before I get into uh, the sermon, uh, which is on uh, the Lord restoring uh, his fortunes to the people of Israel. And we are grateful uh, to be uh, a church that is in a position where our, our people have by and large remained uh, generous and remained uh, active in, in their participation uh, in the ministry of generosity. I want to just uh, say uh, again how much of a positive ripple effect that generosity has. I actually received uh, a, a hand-signed letter from the mayor of the city of Nashville this morning. It was waiting for me uh, on my desk, specifically thanking Christ Presbyterian Church for its generosity to nonprofits in the city of Nashville. Uh, the generosity of this church, uh, 44% of which goes outside the doors uh, of, of, of Christ Prez, uh, is 
making such an impact on the city of Nashville that the mayor of Nashville has written our church to thank us for that. There is a ripple effect. There's a negative ripple effect when generosity is withheld. There is a positive ripple effect when generosity uh, is, is leaned into. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, many of you know and many of you may not know that, that there are 52 nonprofits that, that we call partners uh, as Christ Prez. And uh, there are only 52 because we choose to, to, to donate and give to our partners uh, in, in, a, in a, a robust way. And um, we also have 17 uh, Christ Presbyterian, what we call city groups, which are, which are groups of Christ Pres people and Nashville friends who go out into the city and serve in the places where they live, work, and play and make a mark for the kingdom of God. And so I, want, I know this is a weird time. This is also a time where I think a lot of us are tempted to hit pause on a lot of things. And what I want to encourage us to, 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 to be is a church that does not hit pause uh, during this season on being the church, uh, in being as fully present as possible as, uh, you know, with, with each other, whether it's in person or online, as fully uh, present as we can be with the Lord himself, uh, and, and to continue to reach out to people, to encourage our neighbors, to continue to stay in community with one another in whatever ways that's possible, and to continue in the spirit of generosity that has so characterized this church. You guys, I can't believe we get to, to, to send out 44% of, of, of what comes in um, when, when the, the, the average is around 10% for, for the typical church, but we get to, to, to exceed that uh, in, in multiplied ways because of your, your faithfulness and your generosity. And so thank you for that. That's the introduction that will not be there uh, at the end of the sermon as usual. Uh, but I wanted to just sort of stir your imagination in terms of, of, of where this goes. It really is making an impact. Impact, uh, on our city. So uh, our text, uh, as has already been announced and sung about and sung over, is the 126th Psalm. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent, which is the series that we're in uh, today. And the title of today's sermon is Joy in Sorrow. Uh, so um, m- one of my favorite rock songs ever is this song called Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin. Okay, any Zeppelin fans out there? So, okay, one. Good. Uh, so, Fool in the Rain uh, is, is represented in, in, in a movie called Singing in the Rain. Uh, there's a man who looks like a fool in the rain uh, because he's smiling, he's skipping, and singing on a day like today. And, and like Nate Tasker said, at 8.30 this morning, it felt like 3 in the morning. It was so dark outside. And so... Ominous, but, but this man in the movie who is singing in the rain, who looks a bit like a fool doing so, there's a context for why he's singing in the rain that I'll, that I'll talk about toward the end of the message. But the picture of this man singing like a fool in the rain is a bit of a metaphor for life in Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. The Apostle Paul wrote from prison these famous words. He was in prison for his faith, and he wrote these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice, for the Lord is near. 
And then in Galatians, to a, to, a, to a church that had lost its joy because they defaulted to moralism and legalism and bickering and cancel culture inside their church instead of the joy that was meant to, to be experienced and enjoyed in community. And, and, and the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia and says, what has happened to all of your joy? You know, Ellen Glasgow, uh, in her autobiography, uh, has a section where she writes about her father, who was a very religious man, an elder in the church that she grew up in, and she said this about her father. He was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. He never committed a pleasure, as if that was a bad thing to commit a pleasure. So, uh, you church history people, you, you, you may have heard of a man named Philip Melanchthon. He was Martin Luther's right-hand uh, person. Uh, and, uh, you know, Luther was this sort of gre- gregarious, where all of his feelings on his sleeve, sometimes offensively so, uh, but, but, but Luther was one who just lived large after he discovered the grace of God. And he got frustrated sometimes with Melanchthon because Melanchthon came across as reserved and and austere, a bit like Ellen Glasgow's father. And one time Luther says to Melanchthon, for heaven's sake, Philip, why don't you go out and sin a little bit? God deserves to have something to forgive you for. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Joy is a holy and spiritual thing. And joy is not faking fine. That, that, that's not what biblical joy is, to, to, to have a rainy day and pretend like it's a sunny day. Biblical joy is much more authentic and much more honest and much more nuanced than that. Biblical joy can be described as a stability of the soul. A soul that is so stable that it is, that it is able to sow in tears and shout with joy at the same time. Where tears and joy, the full range of human emotion, the full range of human experience can go together in honesty and authenticity. Two examples from Christ's prayers that I can think of or that I was thinking of actually just this morning. We're, we're going to close this morning's service with the, the, the classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I hope you'll stay for that because my heart needs to hear you sing it. Uh, and those of you who are online, I wish that my heart could sing it, hear you sing it. If you want, you can send me a voice message or an email with you singing. And I, I would love to, to hear somebody from our church that way as well. It is well with my soul. You know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. What I've noticed in my eight years here at Christ Press is whenever we sing that song, the people who sing it with the most gusto and intensity, where belief in the words and in, is written all over their body language is the sufferers. It's the people who are suffering or it's the people who have suffered. It's the people who know suffering. The other example I can think of is a more recent one. There's a, actually a person in our church 
who has an autoimmune situation uh, that, 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 that makes alcohol, if he, if, if he even swallows an ounce of, of an alcoholic beverage, the alcohol can work like poison in his body. It, in, in the same way, if you or I swallowed poison, that's how alcohol works in his body because of his autoimmune situation. And one time during communion, he thought that he was drinking uh, juice, uh, but it turned out he was drinking wine. He, he picked up the wrong cup. And he came to me afterwards and he said, I, I drank wine instead of juice. And he said, I've got to admit, I'm freaking out a little bit. But the thought also dawned on me. If I died because I took communion, what better way is there to die? You know, and, and this is a guy who doesn't know how the alcohol is going to affect him yet. And yet that's the testimony on his lips, that, that if the Lord took my life from taking communion, um, you know, it's happened before. The Lord lost his own life, and that's why we have communion. But people who can do that, people who can grieve, people who can deal with anxiety and fear and have joy at the same time. So what I want to do uh, this morning is talk about two things. First, from this psalm, the reason why we lose joy, and then secondly, how we can recover it. First, the reason why we lose joy. We always lose joy for one reason and one reason only. We are putting both of our feet, or just even one of them, on a weak foundation. I'll explain what I mean here from Scripture, from the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, Jesus says that there are two foundations upon which you can, can, can set your life, your world. There's the foundation of the sand, which will sink, and, and, and as it sinks, it will sink you. And then there's the foundation of the rock. Okay, the sand is anything but Jesus, and the rock is Jesus. When we look to the sand, when we look to anything but Jesus to be our Jesus, to be the thing that saves us, to be the thing that holds us up, When we make our well-being contingent on anything but Jesus, we sink. Because the sand, if I, if I could carry the metaphor a little bit further, the sand is a fleeting thing, and the sand is a weak thing. Let's start with the sand as a fleeting thing. If, if any of you have visited the ocean, you know, maybe you've, uh, you know, the, you, you beachgoers, I know there are a lot of those in Nashville, um, Let's say you build a sandcastle, and, and let's just say it's, it's ornate. It's, it's very carefully designed because you've got gifts, you know, sculpting gifts, and you, you build this sandcastle, and then you realize the tide is moving closer and closer and closer to your sandcastle. As soon as that tide goes over and back, just once or twice, that sandcastle is gone because sand is weak when the water comes, when it rains. You know, here we have the people of Israel experiencing a bit of nostalgia about years past that they would look to as their golden years. And they're saying to God in the midst of present suffering, in years past, Lord, you restored our fortunes. Our mouth was filled with laughter. 
Restore our fortunes again, Lord. It's almost as if they're escaping to another time and another place to take themselves away from the moment that they're in. You know, the philosopher Albert Camus wrote about how he would regularly try to escape the pain of his life through the experience of art. He would go to the theater, he would watch a film, he would listen to music or the symphony, uh, read literature, spend the day at the museum. But he said that, that I was never able to fully enjoy and rest in the art because there was always this nagging sense of the reality of having to re-enter reality. And so art for me became a temporary escape from pain. The other way that Camus tried to escape reality was through hedonism. He wrote this famous quote some time ago. He said, because I longed for eternal life, because I longed to be saved from the curse of a fallen world, I went to bed with harlots and I drank for nights on end. In the morning, though, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. In other words, any escape... Any escape that isn't an escape to Jesus, but to something else, is a temporary escape. And and, and the water is going to come, you know, the tide is going to rise, and it's going to wash over the castle, and the castle is going to crash down because sand is weak. Anthony Ray Hinton is another example. Uh, You may remember Anthony Ray Hinton as as a man who stood right where I'm standing now just a few months ago to tell the same story that he tells in his book, called The Sun Does Shine. It's, it's an autobiography about his 30 years on death row for being unjustly incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit that he had a clear alibi for that got, got covered and smothered and, and unacknowledged by the legal system in the state of Alabama and he spent 30 years on death row for one reason, because he was a black man. And you know, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, if you've seen the movie Just Mercy, uh, Ray Hinton is one of the people that, 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 uh, that uh, Brian Stevenson got out of jail and fought for him. And what, what Ray Hinton says in retrospect is that the only way I was able to survive those 30 years of knowing that I wasn't just on death row, but I was on death row for something that somebody else out there did was to imagine, was to escape to my imagination. And when I escaped to my imagination, I was married to Halle Berry. And I would imagine, you know, dining together with my wife, Halle Berry, and going on walks with her and and enjoying married life with her. And then I got tired of Halle Berry, and so I, I, I got married to Sandra Bullock in my mind. And, and I would enjoy being married to Sandra Bullock, and that's how I escaped the, the, the torture of solitary confinement and such. But he writes about how you, you always have to leave your imagination and come back into reality. It's just a different version of what Camus tried to do. And so when we are experiencing nostalgia for a past we once had or for 
Maybe a fantasy that we've never experienced. What is that fantasy? If I had this, if this would be restored, everything would be okay again. If the money was restored, if the job situation was restored, the health, the future. These are painful questions. Because we're made to flourish. We're made to, to experience the things that our hearts long for. And, and, and the fall has just crushed all of that and made life so hard. The sand is fleeting. But the sand is also weak. If you go for a walk on the beach, you, 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 and if you pay attention to your feet, you'll realize every step you take, your body weight pushes the ground, or the sand, into the ground and, and, and forms the sand into the likeness of your foot because the sand is weaker than you are. It's weaker than you are. So if it's weaker than you are, it can't be your foundation. You know, back to the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus talks about building a foundation on the rock or the sand, he's talking about our emotional non-negotiables. The things we say we must have in order for joy to be restored again. Jesus is helping us see that we're always at risk of putting something in the place of God, of taking a weaker thing and, and turning it into an ultimate thing, of taking a created thing and trying to turn it into our Jesus, into our functional Lord, into our functional Savior. You know, what has 2020 taken away from you? Just think about it. What's, what's the most painful thing that the year 2020 has taken away from you? Or, or, or I know there's some in this room. You know, you wish that another year was as good as 2020 because of what you lost in that year. The question is, what has been taken away from you? What are you longing to be restored to you? And how is the loss changing the way that you move forward with your life? So I remember watching an interview with a, a world-famous chief executive officer of a very large corporation. You'd recognize his name if I said it. Um, he had a near-death experience, and he survived it. And an interviewer said, now that you've had a near-death experience and you've gotten your life back, how are you going to live your life differently moving forward? And he said, huh, that's an interesting question. I've never thought of it that way. But I suppose my answer is this. Now that I've had a near-death experience, I resolve to never drink a bottle of wine that costs less than $100 again. To which... I don't know how you respond to that, but my heart responds, is that all? Is that all you can think of? That you'll never drink not super expensive wine again. And that's your vision for the rest of your life in light of the fact that you almost died. You know, C.S. Lewis says that God has a much greater purpose for our pain he says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. He's saying we have rebellious, hardened souls. And pain is, is God breaking the ground of what Lewis calls a fortress 
in our souls, a a force field of self-protection from God. As if God can, as if we can trust ourselves more than we can trust God. He says it's his megaphone. What's he trying to wake, awaken us to? That, that he loves us, that he's for us, that he's so much more solid than, than, than any sand that, we're, that we want to build our lives on. Like, 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 wine, really? Wine more expensive than $100. But if I'm honest, I, I would probably fill the blank in with something like that as well. And Lewis would also say of me, sir, you are far too easily satisfied. Like the kid playing in the mud puddle doesn't want to go to the beach because he can't imagine the beach being better than the mud puddle. You know, poet Wallace Stevens said, what we need in order to have joy on a day like this and in a season like this and with news cycles like this and with healthcare situations like this, and with economic situations like this, what we need, Wallace Stevens says, is an imperishable bliss, a bliss that won't die, uh, a, a source of happiness that cannot be taken away from us. And Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount, too, in the context of saying you can't love God and money at the same time. You can have God and money at the same time, Job, Abraham. Um, you know, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Solomon and all of his wisdom and splendor that Jesus even talks about in the Sermon on the Mount as well. You can have God and money, but you can't love God and money at the same time. It's impossible. You have to go one direction or another. And money is really representative of anything that, 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 that we're tempted to put in the place of God and look to as our functional Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. You can't love God and money at the same time, but here's good news. If you take your heart, which is your greatest treasure, you you take your heart and you invest it where Jesus is, firmly seated at the right hand of God the Father after coming up from the dead and ascending into heaven. If If you anchor your heart there, if you invest your heart there, if you put your foundation on the rock instead of the sand then your treasure will be located in a place where moths can't eat it up and where thieves can't come in and steal it because it's not sand. It's the sand castle that will withstand a hurricane because it's built out of a rock. How do we recover joy? That's our second thought. I've already answered the question. By relocating our treasure to where Christ is is. Eugene Peterson says that there are two ways we do this. We build on the past and we borrow from the future. So let's talk about those two really quickly. Building on the past. You know, verses one through three, the Lord has done great things. You know, the psalmist is referring to past restorations that the Lord has accomplished in history both for him and also for the people of God before him. And therefore, in the present moment, we are glad. The Lord has done great things. He has restored the fortunes of his people. We're suffering terribly right now, and yet we are also glad. Tears and joy, singing in the rain, all going together. 
If you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, uh, which is a loose telling of the story of the the world-class mathematician John Nash, who also was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and became virtually impossible to be around, let alone to live with. And at a certain point in the movie, A Beautiful Mind, uh, a friend asks John Nash's wife, how do you put up with this? How do you stay? How do you do it? How do you do it? I can't bear five minutes with him. How, How do you spend your whole life with him? And she says, every time I'm tempted to flee, I just remember the man that he once was. And we can think about that and we can think, oh, that's such a noble thing to say. And yet, it's also so tragic because it makes no promise for what lies ahead. It only draws, it only draws from something that once lived and is now dead, at least to her. But with God... The whole course of history is about God restoring fortune for his people. It's it's what God does because it's who God is. He is the one who restores. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They had lost life as they knew it. And what does God do? He comes in and he, he brings them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and leads them through the wilderness into a land flowing with milk and honey. He restores their fortunes. Or take David the psalmist himself. The thing that gave David the courage to step out in faith and fight Goliath was a prior encounter that God gave him victory in when he encountered in the wilderness an actual lion. And and he says, the Lord gave me strength to defeat the lion with my own hands. Can I not defeat this nine-foot Philistine as well? And he does with a slingshot and a rock. Little guy David topples the Philistine giant. And then it was no doubt the Goliath experience that, that, that gave David the courage to persevere under the persecution and ridicule and, and, and aggression of King Saul. David triumphs there and then becomes the king and then, and then David needs to be rescued not from other people but from himself. When he abuses his power, he sees the neighbor as king. He sees the neighbor woman, Bathsheba, who also is married to his, one of his best friends, Uriah. And it says that he sent his servants to her and took her. There's nothing consensual about this. And then from there, we get Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Restore to me. There's that word again. Restore. What's the fortune you want me to restore to you, David? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The shame, the guilt, the memory of what I've done, it is too much to bear. And God restores him. You could go on and on. What memory does God give of us? Here it is, the body and the blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the Lord's death as often as you eat, as often as you drink until he comes again. That brings us to the second part, borrowing from the future. Verses four through six. Listen to the confidence 
in the psalmist's voice. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. This is a command. It's not even a question. And, and when people command God in prayers that God sanctions, like this one, what's going on? All they're doing is saying, be exactly who you are. It's a command born not of disrespect for God, but of respect for him. I know who you are. You're the God who restores. I know the history. I've experienced the history. So do it again. Do it again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, a little history on the Negev. That was a vast, blistering hot desert in Israel. It was like their version of the Grand Canyon, just dry, arid, with, with, with all kinds of, of, of um, you know, sort of river-like ditches, smaller ditches than the Grand Canyon, but ditches that would become watercourses, irrigation systems, in the event that a rain would come down like the one we got last night and this morning. When the rain came down in the Negev, those watercourses, that irrigation system was filled and, 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 and the whole desert would become like a botanical garden filled with color and life and laughter and food. Make our situation like the Negev. Our situation that feels and looks dry as a bone. Send sudden rain, Lord. Fill these ditches with irrigation and bring the vibrancy back. Do you hear the metaphor here? Singing in the rain. Why did this fool in the rain act like such a fool in the rain? Because, to quote Wallace Stevens again, he had a bliss. He'd fallen in love. And the fact that he had fallen in love it was so much bigger to him and, and, and bore so much more emotional weight on him than a thunderstorm. But the problem for the man in the movie is that his bliss was not an imperishable bliss. As Wallace Stevens says, we need to have, we need to have an imperishable bliss in order to have joy in the rain, lasting joy. I mean, those of you who are married, most of you, because you recognize you're not a great poet, use the traditional vows, which are the ones we use. The traditional vows are excellent, and they end with this until death do us part. This man had fallen in love and he'd experienced bliss and he's singing in the rain, but, but he can only sing for so long because his bliss is perishable. But look at verse one. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. There's a clue in there. We were like those who dream. Restoring fortunes after a dream. What does that conjure up? It conjures up the image of a nightmare. I have two nightmares to report to you. One is a recurring nightmare. That's when I get up here and I realize I have no notes. I haven't thought about what I'm going to talk about. And I'm exposed as 
a fraud, as somebody who's not ready, as somebody who's you know, unprofessional, um, as a loser. I, I, one of my greatest fears is being perceived and seen as a loser. And, and it takes the form of showing up in a pulpit and having nothing to say. I'm sure that day will come for me. Um, the other dream is less recurring, thankfully, but I've had it a couple of times. And it's this nightmare that my family has gone missing. And nobody knows where they are. And I can't find them. You, you relate, Jicky? <laughs> right? Sorry, I see Buzz over there. Um, and yet, he's restored to you, right? I'm sorry to call you guys out, but you're right there. So I might as well. Buzz was lost in the woods for <laughs> two or three days. And, and we had no idea where he was. And he emerges and... And it's this glorious restoration. And we're, we like you even more now than we did before, Buzz, because we got you back. That's what happens when you wake up. Back to Israel's, you know, saying, we were like those who dream when you wake up from a nightmare. That you've lost your loved ones. You love them even more when you see them sleeping, breathing next to you. And you know they're sleeping down the hallway as well. And you know you have them back. You know, when I awoke, I had the opposite experience that Camus did. Camus, Camus awoke to the bitter taste of the mortal state when he re-entered reality, his version of reality. But then when I re-entered reality from a bad dream, I woke to greater joy. That's the future for every Christian, friends. You're going to awake to joy you have not seen or experienced your best day or your, your best season yet. None of you. No matter how old you are. You, you can be 92 years old. You have not yet experienced your best day or your best season or your best moment. Think for a moment. Not just about the worst thing that has happened to you in 2020, but what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Think about the gravity of that experience right now. If you're the taskers, think about you know, losing your two children, as, as Nate shared with us earlier, or just something tr utterly tragic like that. Think of the gravity of that pain, and then, then imagine the reality that you're going to wake up to. That whatever gravity of pain that experience brought your way, there's going to be an even greater gravity of joy when you get it back. Do we understand this? We will get back everything that we have lost and then some when the Lord restores the fortunes to his people. Because he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, the seed, all you got to do there is think of a David Filson prayer that always closes, the seed who crushed the serpent's head. Who is that? Genesis 3, Jesus Christ, you are a carrier of that seed. Bearing the seed for sowing shall come home. That's a reference long-term to glory, the new heaven and the new earth, your best days that are yet to come. With shouts of joy bringing your sheaves, the restoration of everything lost with you. This is the goodness of God. 
How can we recover joy? By realizing that we don't have to do a thing to recover it. The Lord has already sealed that recovery, promised it, secured it. It's coming, friends. That being true, will you stand with me now? Turn your eyes to the screen. We're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. What right, friends, do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God, through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great and precious promises. We thank you for Jesus, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, who is also the Alpha and Omega, the the beginning and the end of all things, the author and perfecter and completer and securer of our faith and also of our best and most restored days, which are still ahead of every Christian in this room. Thank you for this, Lord. When I look around this room, I see a lot of pain from the past and from the present. I know so many of the stories, Lord. I know my own story and my own hurts and my own laments. And I thank you, Lord, that you will restore to the uttermost that which has been lost. We are grateful for the bread and the cup that remind us of this. Now, would you take the Lord's Supper?